internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover a world of God and reach the side of the floor. to the show. Thank you for joining us. Today we have two returning guests, one of my most popular, two of them, actually two of my most popular guests ever, Isaac Simpson, the disgraced propagandist of the Carousel podcast, and Lomez of Passage Press. And the second passage, the second annual Passage Prize is underway right now. And uh, i really happy to have you back on, Lomez, to kind of promote what's going on. Let us know how everything has gone so far, what we can expect. Are all the uh, uh, submissions in by now? Yeah, thanks, Astral. Thanks for having me back on. Um, yeah, all the submissions were in. We got our final submissions in on January like 5th or 6th. I ended up extending the deadline a little bit. Um, some stragglers at the end of the year were still polishing some stuff up, so I didn't want to leave anybody behind. Uh, we got, I would say, like about three quarters of the total number of submissions uh, we got last time, which is about what we expected. I think this time around uh, people who just had random stuff lying in the drawer, you know, an old poem they had written or just whatever thing they wanted to uh, toss off at the last minute. um, Didn't submit that stuff. So it's a, a bit less in terms of volume, but, um, from the early returns and the stuff I've seen so far, it appears the average quality is quite a bit higher. So I'm really excited to start digging into all this. Oh, that is great to hear. Uh, now, if I remember correctly from the first Passage Prize, part of your impetus was for people who don't normally create or write to try to get them to create or write something. Is that still your philosophy? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it certainly is. Would you say you know, you this? a lot of first time creators. Yeah. Well, certainly people who for the first time were putting their stuff out to the world to be read and evaluated. So I have a hunch that a lot of people sit around and might think of themselves as a a writer or an artist or a poet, but when it comes time to share their work, maybe freeze up a little bit um, and doubt their ability And so what this contest does, among other things, is give them a venue to share that work and put themselves out there and sort of dare to bring something into the world that could potentially be cringe or bad and, uh, you know, reveal that they may not have the talent they, they hope they did. And so that takes like real courage to do that. And um, I think a lot of people have have used Passage as an opportunity um, to that end. But then also what we want to cultivate here is like real talented people who are dissatisfied with legacy publishers, legacy media world. Um, Here's a place where you can present your art and it can be uh, about whatever you want it to be. 
it can speak to themes and ideas and characters that, you know, may be too far outside the Overton window, which is of course increasingly narrow um, for it to get any hearing in that legacy world where here, you know, we're happy to see that stuff and we want to promote that stuff. So um, it's both a combination of, of new talent and then also talent that's already sort of exists, but uh, has been neutered and sort of defanged by the status quo. I think it's a great thing that you're doing. And I know uh, Zero HP Lovecraft was a, uh, a judge last time, and he just put on his telegram that he's uh, made a submission. So yeah. uh, we, we have some old pros and uh hopefully we got some new blood and you guys expose a lot of new blood a lot of people i'm following now on twitter uh you had your first publication since you came on the show you've had at least two publications you had the passage prize book you had uh uh mention small bugs unqualified reservation so yeah we got um we got curtis's book um we have i think uh the count right now is five other books in the pipeline for 2023 we're hoping to release a real like front end publishing catalog in 2023 that will include um, new works of fiction, new works of nonfiction, and uh, also one other reproduction of online writing in a similar vein to our publication of Unqualified Reservations, but with a writer whose stature in our space may even exceed uh Yarvin stature I know that's a tall order and I and I can't say exactly who um because the terms of that deal haven't been reached yet but um it looks like that's a go so I'm really excited for what 2023 is going to bring and uh if anyone out there is listening investors you want to get a piece of the action okay uh send me a dm because we're looking for some money to scale out this operation we got all of the pieces in place. We just need some capital to get things moving and print enough books so that we can get it out there. Um, so, yeah, that's my offer to any investor. Get in touch with me. That sounds amazing. And I can't wait to see what's coming down the pike. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this year's topic. So you had four categories, fiction, nonfiction, poetry and visual arts, which I somehow thought you were going to add another category, but you were definitely talking about adding more categories. So uh, what, what were the yeah. other cate categories you were thinking? Of? I think you said music, maybe. Yeah, music is the big one. Music, uh, short film, I would have loved to have had. And uh, maybe even like a children's or YA fiction category. Uh, but certainly music and, and film were what I was hoping to bring on board this year. But so there's a few issues there with logistics, um, like handling that material and how we would judge it and then how we would deliver it to uh, like readers and um, audience. And then with film, that is also very difficult logistically. Uh, commonly with, with a film contest, you know, you have like a screening at some point at the end of it. And that's something we'd love to do, um, maybe have an in-real-life meeting at some point, let's say in the summer, where short films are screened. Maybe there's live music from contestants, readings from people who have won 
or submitted their work to Passage Prize. I mean, I can imagine all sorts of stuff. But again, that requires both capital and uh, some logistics that I just knew I wasn't alone going to be capable of of following through on. So, yeah, scaling this operation up um, is something I want to do because there's so much we can do from this starting place. It's just a matter of of aggregating the resources to make it happen. Yeah, well, this all sounds great. You guys are just getting started. I mean, the fact that this is only the second annual and you've already put out such high quality products, you got so many people behind you and so many people participating. I just think it's and, and a lot of other things, too, that are happening in our sphere that aren't directly related to Passage Prize are telling me that uh, this whole cultural revolution that Yarvin, you know, predicted or called for uh, Yarvin and others. um is really just picking up steam and it's really just getting started. And when he was on the show last year, me and him talked about like, you know, the 10th annual passage prize meeting in LA or Las Vegas or something where all the previous winners show up and the wares are being, being hucked and a viewing uh, screening of the passage prize short films is a great goal, a great goal. So we need those investors to come and make all that stuff happen. Now um, the, the, the topic for this, issue or this this prize if i remember correctly last year was escaping the longhouse and now this is rewilding and it seems like there's like a theme that you're developing which i think is great yeah that's sort of uh happening organically like when i first started this uh project i didn't anticipate like this full narrative arc over the course of you know however many years but um it came pretty naturally like the the idea of rewilding um, emerged directly as a consequence of the first theme of exiting the longhouse. And in fact, someone got a hold of me and mentioned to me that this is following a pattern that's consistent with like the meaning of zodiac signs. You know, there's like a, there's a cycle of exit and rebirth. And then, I mean, the next one I have an idea of, you know, returning and, laying to waste the longhouse, raising and ashing, and then, you know, rebuilding on the ruins and striking out for the frontier to rebuild again, you know, so there's a sort of narrative arc to this that is, um, that is fairly sort of archetypal. It it consists, you know, it, it exists throughout history. So I'm just kind of following my gut mostly, but um, it does seem to be aligning with uh with a narrative that may be familiar to people i don't know how long out i'll go with this you know maybe you get to the end of the cycle and you just start over or you know we go 10 years with this or five or three or whatever it it runs its course and then we go move on to something else so i i haven't thought really more long term than the next six months um but uh, there's certainly opportunity to to carry this out for a while. Well, that's good to hear. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't thinking that. I was, I was wondering if, like, in the years to come, you'll be publishing like original novels and original short story collections and things like that from Passage Press. But I guess it's, oh yeah, totally. Oh good, that's, that's going to a... be happening at the end of this year. Oh, yeah, yeah, perfect. we're getting, we're, that's that's where we're going. I mean, Passage Prize as an entity um, is a part of passage press, but it's not all we're doing. So the idea is to start publishing uh, new original works of fiction and nonfiction alike. And like I said, that we already have some stuff in the pipeline for 
the next year. Um, Passage Prize also is a way to locate those, that talent that can produce that kind of stuff. Um, in addition to Passage Prize, as it currently exists, we are going to be running a novel contest in this upcoming year. Um, we're kind of figuring out the details of that and how to organize a novel contest. I mean, reading through a hundred even novels is a major, major time sink. So we're going to have to figure out a way to run the contest in such a way that it's, it's viable for, for an operation as small as ours, but that's definitely something we want to do and will do um, in the coming months. We'll probably be announcing something to that effect. Well, that's a great plan, and I'm really looking forward to what you guys put out, uh, very much so. So I'm glad to hear all this. Now, have you, um, I don't even know if I, I'm really allowed to ask this, but have you either read through anything or heard back from any of the judges, or is it too soon? For this current one, I have heard uh, some preliminary reports from a few of the judges, and so far, so good. Some really good stuff. In fact, the day after I sent... Um, the fiction judge mentors mold Bugman, his, uh, his big catalog of submissions to read. He sent me back like immediately saying, I, I think I found a winner. This one's, this is an absolutely killer story. I didn't anticipate uh. reading it, but I've been up all night, like reading this thing. It's amazing. Um, and that was like within the first three or four stories he read. Now, who knows? Maybe that is the one, but I have a sense that we're going to get a, a lot of, uh, really, really good stuff. And that's just going to be one of, one of many. And by the way, anybody who is interested, Mencius Mold Bugman, great poster, amazing short story writer in his own right. He has, uh, been perma banned from Twitter. So you're not going to find him there, but he started a Substack, a passage prize at Substack where he's going to be writing about um, these stories as they come in and as he evaluates them, providing commentary and excerpts, et cetera. So follow that Substack, follow along. Um, it's guaranteed to be a good time. He's a great writer. That's awesome to know. I did not know that about his Substack. I do have his, um, I think it's called Unsqualified Reservations, book of short stories. I've only, yeah, I yeah. totally dug in, but the one I did read, was kind of uh pretty wild and and uh I wrote a story that is in the most recent uh man's world called Operation Hard R. It's also on my blog behind a paywall and it's a bit it's kind of like an absur- absurd like bizarre piece of like satire and uh somebody compared it to mention Mesh's Mold Bugman's style so I took that as a huge compliment. Yeah, that's high um, praise, man. Yeah. yeah, I took that as a huge compliment. Um so I you know a friend of ours, Spendo, who's going yeah. to be on this show soon, if I remember correctly, he had some uh, photography in the book, but there isn't a photography prize right now. Was I don't think there was last year either. No, there wasn't. That was just so. Actually, the the technically the category is visual art, so that ah, just falls gotcha. under the umbrella of visual gotcha. art. And yes, yeah, Spendo sent us some really cool photographs. A kind of uh, collage of photographs, I guess. Um, really evocative of a certain kind of feel and like California vibe. And um, we had this amazing uh, nonfiction piece, this essay by a writer named Charlie Deist about, um, you know, being a pothead 
and the sort of trap, the weed trap that uh, many people sort of fall into. And Spendo's photographs were just a perfect um, accompaniment to that to that essay. So we put those two things together, and I think it makes really nice sort of um, complement. That's great. Yeah, I wanted to bring it up and point it out because there's a lot of stuff in the book. Like you, you put a lot of people in the book who didn't win, but you still thought were noteworthy. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and I quite a lot. Yeah, I know who like won the three visual art uh prizes and they all kind of were of a same piece in a way so it's good to know that you guys are promoting like all different sorts of visual arts it's a pretty broad category yeah it's really broad i mean there's i think all told there were like 80 contributors to this book um every one of which got paid out by the way i just want to oh make that i didn't know clear. that that's great yeah they didn't all get like the big prizes but um i made sure that every single person who we published uh, got paid. Now, some of them, to their credit, said, no, don't worry about it. Just carry that forward to the next prize. And um, I thank them for that. But uh, yeah, everybody who goes in the book is getting paid for their stuff, even the non-prize winners. Awesome. Awesome. Now, um, do you feel like, I, I kind of want to take this conversation just because we can't get into the contents of the stories yet, but um, I didn't do that last year. I'd like to do that this year. Like, go through like once the next book comes out like go through the actual contents of it um and display it display it uh you know we could like do it on twitter and also have an episode either with you or some of the authors um who contributed and won the prizes do you this is a pretty broad question um and i feel like everybody like participating probably has their own version of this but would you say you have like a guy or a writer or a, a couple couple writers who like sort of inspire the type of writing you want to see. Like if, if somebody were to come to you and say like, what exactly do you mean by rewilding? Like I can't conceptualize what you're trying to say. Is there any writer or book you could think of that you would offer them as like an example of like what you're going for? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And my answer is no, there's not. And And the reason I say no is because, one thing I'm trying to accomplish with this contest. So there's like the starting place is that our culture is kind of stuck. It's dead. It's, it's um, not moving forward and has been kind of caught in this uh, like stasis for a while, for maybe a couple of decades even. And what I think we need to do is break free from that stagnation and move in some new direction and towards some new place that will be totally distinct and alien uh, than what came before it. And so I wouldn't want anybody to try to like mimic the style or tone or point of view of something that came before. That's part of a different era, a different time. And now there's some amazing, great stuff, and all writers should be reading the really good stuff that came before them. But in terms of their new productions, it should be um, it, it should break in some sense from the form and style that they might encounter elsewhere, or innovate uh, on those old styles in a way that feels new and feels fresh and can demonstrate this kind of 
new cultural space that we're building. I mean, uh, someone who's in, like BAP does this, Zero does this. I think the writers who have emerged in this space who are super popular are super popular precisely for that reason. You read this and you go, I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, I, I can remember the first time picking up Bronze Age Mindset and whatever else it is or isn't. And it's an incredible book in a lot of different respects. But I just you read through like some of those opening that, that opening paragraph, opening section. You go, my God, like, what is this? I've never seen anything like this before. And that's the kind of feeling that I think any good new writing and new art will evoke in its readers and in its audience. I'm so glad you just said that. I, I couldn't agree any more than that. That's absolutely exactly right. And that's the feeling I had reading both Bronze Age Mindset and Zero's work. Um, I came, you know, from the outside. A lot of people, like, those guys are really popular with people who were, like, online a lot. And people who knew who they were for a long time. Well, especially Bap, because he's he was around before. Um, but I came from the outside, and it was those guys and their work that drew me in. And, and Moldbugs uh, mm-hmm. and Nick Land. That's how I even became aware that any of this was happening was because I was reading Moldbug and Land and the people who talk about them online talk about BAP and, you know, it all one thing leads to another. Um, but I wasn't really like indoctrinated into this like subculture. I hadn't really been around for any of it. So for me to come from the outside and to read like the gig economy for the first time mm-hmm. was just like such a it was a shock. It was a paradigm shifting moment. And it was like a huge revelation, like, okay, something's going on, something's happening, because I thought, you know, I agree with everything you're saying here and like the cultural stagnation you're talking about. Um, I was like, okay, maybe there is hope. And I'm just still continuously excited about seeing where it's all going. Uh, because Zero is like, like one of the most important writers like ever, like just not just his like content and his the way he is right wing uh the way he he like he like packages a right wing message in a rather somewhat traditional sci-fi story but the form that the way he tells the story is so uh contemporary and so of the times and so like uh aware of the medium and the way the medium is affected by the internet by digital culture that he's like the perfect avatar for like a cultural renaissance. And then Bab is a, is a different thing because he's not fiction. But I agree with you. Like when I read it, I'm like, oh, the thing that I gave up on trying to find exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here it is, you know. The the thing that's ironic about what you're saying, though, is that what is Zero's name? It's literally the name of another great writer. Yeah, it's, like, it's funny that we're talking about him being super original when literally his actual entire identity is the identity of somebody else. Yeah, but the way he incorporates it is even it's like exemplary of what I'm saying about him because and he said this many, many times. But like when you play like a role playing video game and the, and like video games are such a big part of this culture, they're like maybe the central thing Um, you have and you die, you have zero HP. So he combined zero HP from a role playing game with zero, with HP Lovecraft, which was like kind of a whimsical move in a way. But um, the thing is, is uh, 
I understand, and I'm not saying you're saying this, Isaac, but I understand like a lot of outsiders who don't really read him but know of his Twitter account will sort of like accuse him of being like derivative of like, you know, and he gets this a lot, or at least he used to when those stories first came out. But if you read the stories, like it's it's very clear that he's not uh, 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 fan fiction. Uh, he's not H.P. Lovecraft fan fiction and fan fiction exists. I mean, excuse me, someone just told me there's a Nebula Award or maybe a Hugo Award for fan fiction, which is mm-hmm. which is just I mean, what more do I need to say about the <laughs> the cultural stagnation that the fucking fan fiction gets like the highest award in the genre? So I consider what he's doing with his name to be more of the incorporation of like the digital culture in the very name itself. Yeah, and I just want to add here, sort of clarify, uh, when I say we want to, like, break from this culture and create art that sort of feels alien or, or so different from what exists now that you can't really recognize it, um, I don't mean, like, we should be, like, Dada's and, like, completely break from the past and just sort of throw away everything that's come before and wipe the slate clean. And it's just this kind of, like, creation out of out of nothing, you know? It, it is, a like, that Dada is a sort of, like, historical nihilism. Uh, we are drawing from the past, and that's inevitable. And it's a good thing, you know? Zero using Lovecraft as a starting point is perfectly fine just as BAP using Nietzsche as a starting point is perfectly fine. But what you, what you discover in their writing is they've rendered that influence in such a way that is wholly unique to our present time and circumstances. Lovecraft, the actual Lovecraft could never have written what zero is writing. He could not have produced those stories and you couldn't like plug into a chat GPT, like write a modern sci-fi story in the vein of zero HP love or in the vein of HP Lovecraft. It would never spit out the kind of stuff that zero is writing. So he's doing something with this combination of present circumstances in this sort of, uh, faint influence i mean it's just kind of a shadow over the work it's it's not the work itself uh of of lovecraft that creates an effect that is entirely new and entirely distinct from from its maybe it's like source influence and this is true of bap and nietzsche as well it's it's totally distinct from its source influence even if it's in in many ways informed by it yeah i think that's well said and i think that's um sort of how do i say this like that's part of what we have to do to make something new see i think we're in a very unique time in history uh, especially not just for america really but for western civilization um because i think that there has been a break with the past and is a profound break with the past and i think we have to like take the pieces that are lying around and pick them up and build something new. And, um, and, and I say Western civilization, you know, I don't mean to make it so hyperbolic, but the reason I say that though, is because that's what the Renaissance did. Like they only had so much to work with from their own like cultural resources and cultural capital in terms of like things to build upon. 
they had to go back to the ancients and like try to put those pieces together. And, you know, people say that like they were just trying to recreate what they thought the ancients did with say, uh, drama and sculpture. But what they ended up doing was making a totally new, something totally new and something totally, uh, unique and distinct from what the ancients did. And that is uh, what we now know of as Western art and Renaissance art. Um, so I, Definitely think, I don't really have the time to make this argument, but I definitely think we're in a position like that, that there's been a break from modernism. We just came through the postmodern era, which produced some good things, but I think a lot of them were mostly like dead ends. Uh, and it's, we're sort of like starting over in this like new digital era. And basically like everything we're saying is what I think needs to happen is like one of the only way f- ways forward. And zero HP Lovecraft is absolutely on the cutting edge. Um, he's really out in front. The only other person I think who really saw any of this is uh, Nick Land and, and, and Moldbug. Uh, but the difference between the three of them is that Zero's the only one who writes uh, fiction. Whereas like Nick Land and Moldbug are like conceptual. They like, they're creators of concepts. All right. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned zero astral as being on the cutting edge of, at least in the, in, in the sense of fiction, uh, putting these ideas into stories that, that may have been presented by Land or Yarvin or other thinkers of this kind who are exploring what digital life means and and what it does to storytelling and our concepts of of literature but there is like a predecessor for this or maybe many predecessors you know i'm thinking of neil stevenson and snow crash for example there are uh maybe even like philip k dick too there's a kind of uh genealogy of of writers at least for the william gibson even of the last, you know, half century or so who have in their own ways imagined our present circumstances and written through it, uh, through fiction. Um, you know, I think maybe the difference is while they were just speculating on the effects of a digital world um, or like some version of a non-analog world, we're actually living through it and its actual effects on us and on the world um, are slightly different than maybe what they predicted. And so this requires new fiction and new stories to help explore and understand what precisely those effects are um, on our memory, on how we interact with each other. uh, And even, Honestly, lastly, like our politics, that that comes way after all these other social and cultural effects on um, or that that are uh, produced uh, by this digital landscape we're in. Yeah, Um, so I people have talked about um snow crash stevenson and um who's the other guy gibson gibson yeah I, yeah personally i unfortunately have not read any of those guys at all <laughs> i've read i've read a little bit of philip k dick i'm just not a sci-fi person i'm, mm-hmm. I'm not really into sci-fi books i mean dune was kind of cool but 
Um, where do you, I mean, what's the deal with those books? Are, are they based or are they just kind of early techno internet sci-fi and land? Where does land connect into like a Gibson? Yeah, I mean, this this is a good question. And I am not really the guy to answer that. You know, my yeah. I, I think probably my preferences for literature are closer to yours. Like I've read some of these books in passing more as just sort of historical curiosity than as like deep literary, like native interest in this kind of writing. Um, so I don't want to get out over my skis and start talking about something I, I'm not, you know, I don't really have any authority right. to talk about um, where like land intersects with Gibson. I mean, I'm sure there's like <laughs> a whole sort of dissertation to be written there. I'm not the guy to do it. And certainly not, you know, riffing on a podcast like this um, because frankly, you know, just thinking back on it, as we moved closer and closer to sort of this digital landscape, the further and further back I go and the further removed my taste and interest become from it. So like, as like over the last, like, I don't know, uh, 10 years or so, my reading interests have returned to like old Westerns, you know, uh, I think there's some real maybe resonance with noir and our current circumstances and this kind of so so the thing about noir that's that's interesting and maybe relevant here is there's this breakdown of order you know that's like the central condition of a noir is this person who's attempting to reconstruct order within this sort of maelstrom of chaos and malevolence in which he finds himself you know it's which is you know represented by mm. the city but that's but this could easily this could easily be the frontier as well. You know, it could be the cowboy yeah. who comes into the frontier or it can be the guy who's at his desk, like uh, matrix style or whatever, who's uh, being confronted with this new digital landscape and, and the breakdown of order that's uh, arisen as a result of that. And the breakdown of order, you know, is also uh, goes alongside the breakdown of like morality the breakdown of history and memory. And so you're starting sort of from nothing sort of in this, in this uh, kind of broken, darkened, literally darkened world. And then this like lone figure who's trying to make sense of it. Um, yeah. I mean, we're talking about it, like frontiersmen. Yeah. Frontiersmen or the noir detective. Okay. It's like the same thing. And so, well, but the noir detective is a little bit different than a frontiersman, right? That's a different. Bringing order to chaos. That's the sense in which I mean it. Yeah. Um, Cause is that what a noir detective is always doing? He's following this thread through chaos to try and find chaos, mystery, answer. lack of understanding, malevolence. Um, right. Yeah, this kind of like root Leviathan like order. And there's this singular figure through and, and what's interesting about the Noir Detective too, much like the Frontier Cowboy, is that his moral and ethical code sort of arises independently from the community he exists in. It's his own. It's it's like sort of created through his own. Uh, personal experience in this um, 
sort of a priori sense of what it means to be a man and the duties entailed by that. And so I'm, I'm also sort of drawn to that figure um, and think it's relevant to our present circumstances where those communal and, and social uh, that morality and ethics are just crumbling are sort of missing. Yeah, this is right on because we are in a difficult position in which something like that, that should be spontaneous and come naturally and just sort of arise now has to be like thought about and considered and searched for. And it's still out there, but it needs to be like nurtured and, and cultured by guys like you. Um, because the, they're not the, the society right now isn't conducive to that type of person or that type of relationship with the world. Um, so you think you think art uh, has the potential to sort of uh, evoke that type of disposition? Yeah, I mean, let me just say, like, all of this should be um, amended with the caveat that I'm just riffing here. Like, I haven't you know, given these ideas like considered attention or, you know, for example, like the connection between noir and our present circumstances. I, I you know I'm drawing this connection, like as I, as the words come out of my mouth, honestly, yeah, these things are um, sort of, these, these ideas are out there though. I mean, this isn't the, the first time I've encountered an idea like that about. Right. 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 It's just, I haven't personally, you know, given it, given it much consideration. And so the question is, can art, can art like sort of arrive at uh at these like codes of contact can can art reconstruct the sense of order that has gone missing from our world i mean maybe that seems a bit grandiose to me honestly i think there's a more sort of proximate purpose or objective which is to honestly um render the world as you see it okay and if if we're going to be on like whoever the artist is if it's a writer or visual artist or musician or whatever it's just about sort of honestly rendering that world in the way that that it's seen through your eyes um that doesn't attempt to sort of placate the the broader culture to the extent it even exists, that it doesn't attempt to placate that broader culture sensibilities because those sensibilities are totally corrupted. I mean, they're completely fake and gay. That's what they are. And so we don't want art that tries to conform to those sensibilities. We want art that challenges those sensibilities that looks through them and, and sees through their transparency. And if we're doing that, if we produce art that unapologetically renders our world in the sort of corrupt, degraded, diminished, ugly, very ugly state that it exists in, then that's successful art. Whatever comes of that, whatever like politics comes of that or whatever sort of new social framework might come of that art is just that's above my pay grade. I, I'm not looking that far ahead. But it's not even important, really. What you? I mean, maybe no, no. It is. I mean, I guess it is important. I just that's a that's like um that's a causal effect that's just 
maybe one, two, three, four steps removed yeah. from what I have the capacity to imagine. Yeah, and, and we can't force it either. We can't force it. And that's why I think what you just said is the important part right now, because that's the part we're in. Uh, first place my mind goes when, when listening to you is Welbeck. Uh, he's the mm-hmm. only yes. contemporary writer I could think of who's doing what you're describing needs to be done. I think we need to, the next step though, is to go beyond Welbeck with, um, you know, is praising zero, but he's doing something totally different. He's like, he's like a, a satirist and a sci-fi author, whereas Welbeck is the writer that you're talking about. Well, no, um, so I think they both are. When I say an honest rendering, that doesn't mean a quote, like realistic rendering. Oh, okay. Okay. An honest rendering is, it can be in the mode of satire. It can be in the mode of surrealism. You know, it can be in all sorts of different modes and styles. What it means ultimately is that you're just not flinching at the kind of ugliness and and perversion that is all around us. Like, so it requires two things. A, it requires that you're capable of identifying that ugliness and perversion. And then the second step is rendering it honestly. I think a lot of people are capable of that first thing. They see it, but they're afraid of it or they don't want to be the ones to point it out. And so they don't render it honestly. They dress it up or avoid the really ugly or difficult aspects of it. And so just don't touch it. And so what both Huelbeck and Zero are doing is they're going right at those things directly. And, it, and it's ugly and it's, um, it's grotesque. I mean, it's, it is showing the world for what it is. Man, that is so well put. Uh, I, I love that. The question I have, <clears throat> excuse me, well, I, I, I guess it's an observation, but like, it seems to me like for a while there, it's been like a, a, a revelry in that degeneracy. It's almost mm-hmm. like uh, 20th century fiction, especially 20th century American fiction has sort of been celebrating that degeneracy. And now, uh, you know, Zero talks about this. Uh, actually, there's a podcast with this name, too, that Baudrillard essay after the orgy uh after the orgy yep yeah and um it kind of feels like that's where we're at now because like um you know if you look at like kerouac and and henry miller and like the whole beat movement but really like most prominent writers you can think of from the 20th century uh philip roth um others they are sort of and and even if they themselves have a more sophisticated critique which they do in some places and don't in others. It's in some places it is a rejoicing in that. Uh, the culture that picked it up, Hunter S. Thompson's another one. Uh, mm-hmm. Bukowski, I know Isaac's a big Bukowski guy. The culture that picked that stuff up, like took it and ran with it and like used it to sort of, it's like this feedback loop. It's like this feedback loop where you have these like subcultures that are participating, like the beats, a lot of them were uh going to jazz clubs and doing drugs and going you know to tangier and morocco and participating in all this degeneracy and they write about it and then people pick that up and then they kind of emulate that and that spirals into like more production of music and art and it's this whole cultural movement and i think we're in that now or at least we are potentially at the beginning of that except it's going to be like a reaction to that degeneracy 
I hope. I mean, we'll have to see. But Welbeck is one of the most popular and res- well-respected writers working today. And he's definitely showing how tiresome it is and how tired he is and we are with that lifestyle and how nihilistic it is and sort of a dead end it's been. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I think um, it's precisely the case that the, the sort of hedonism and libertinism of the last half century um while it sounds like a lot of fun uh to live in it we're on the other side of it you know yeah, it's the sure. morning after and now for we're sure. dealing with the consequences but tack on to that this other component which is this digital component and what that has how that sort of scrambled our thinking and completely rearranged how we relate to one another and so there's this and that that part of it how that intersects with this sort of hangover is something I think everybody's still trying to grapple with. Um, I think there's a lot of false optimism that tech is going to just resolve all this pro all these problems. And, you know, we're going to plug into the, to the matrix. We're going to throw on our metaverse goggles or whatever, and just disappear into this digital simulacrum of life. That seems quite obviously both wrong that, that the technology the heart, I mean, we, we've been producing all of this social technology to prepare us for this. You know, you can be whatever you want. You can be whatever gender you want. You can sort of all things are possible in this digital landscape. But what we're running into, and that's through both like digital life, but also all this, all these biotech sort of monstrosities that are suddenly yeah. kind of bearing down on us, you know, artificial wombs and gene editing and you know, the, you see like the most crude version of this are attempts to uh, like these uh, gender transition surgeries. OK, like on paper, you, you walk into a doctor's office and they cut a hole in your, you know, they cut your dick off and they put a hole in your between your legs. And now you're a woman. But it's this disgusting, grotesque, uh, like biological monstrosity that they've created, this sort of real like medical nightmare. And so you, the social tech that we used all of these like ideas that were produced to prepare us for this future in which these things were possible are running into this brick wall of this actual hard technology that can't produce what the social tech has promised. They cannot deliver on this promise. And there's a lot of disappointment and uh, like resentment and, and a lot of grotesque outcomes as a consequence of this sort of uh lack of coherence between the social technology we've created and this hard technology that actually exists. And there are people who are still holding out hope, like the hard technology will get there. We can do all this stuff, but just wait 10 more years. You know, it's like Tesla forever promising their real self-driving cars next year. It's coming. Okay. Well, maybe it'll get there, but I haven't seen it yet. You know, Brazil's glorious future is always just a year out. But we don't quite get there. And that's sort of the same thing for for us. And so, um, yes, it's like this hedonism that we're recovering from. But to get back to your point, we're also dealing with this totally new set of circumstances that the late 20th century couldn't really prepare us for. They couldn't imagine this. And so you you can't go back to Philip Roth and like, try to figure out what these guys would have said about, you know, like jazz, I am jazz, you know, like that's, 
it, it's just like a sort of impossibility for for their worldview. So we're grappling with this new stuff. That's that's I guess where I'm going with that. Astro, you had a great podcast where you talked about uh, the age of Aquarius. And yeah, it's like, that's one of my personal favorites. Like at, at, at around the year 2000, we hit the age of Aquarius and tw- 2020. Aquarius, yeah, the 2020 uh, is a, an age in which everything is submerged underwater. It's like all the things that we used to have uh, kind of are now underwater. And in this new underwater landscape, there's like these new monsters, like new sea monsters and like new problems and new. And w- what was the old world? It was the age of what? The Pisces. Pisces, right? Which is actually a fish. So what's the difference again between the, I'm going somewhere with this, but what's the difference yeah. between the age of Pisces and the age of Aquarius? Uh, well, I think what you're getting at, because there's a lot of differences, but I think what you're getting at is the way I characterize the age of Pisces. And I got this from Carl Jung, is that it's like the age of, uh, well, well, I'll just focus on this one thing uh, of like dichotomies, like the the knowledge of good and evil and the, the split, like dualism, the dualism of uh, mind and body and the uh, the sort of like post enlightenment, uh, post liberal rationality of like uh of like uh contingencies like you use your rational brain mm-hmm. to kind of work your way through uh problems to come to like enlightenment which is like uh the highest form of like use of the mind and being and it's the it's the it's the way that you sort of think your way the process you think your way out of like uh benightedness and darkness of like uh a pre-rational age but what I'm saying is like that was like the culmination of the age of Pisces. Yeah. And by the time we get to the age of Aquarius, the enlightenment is like darkened and dampened and like the, the dichotomies and is are drowned. Uh, yeah. and so we're in this new like dark ocean. We're in a new dark ocean. And the reason I'm saying this is because like we can look at this as per what Lomez just very uh brilliantly said, is um we're facing this new kind of panel of horrors. And I think that Astral, the way that you've backed that up and what Zero talks about, for example, is saying that we reached, we we shifted over in ages and we had this age of Pisces, the, the fish and who is the fish? Jesus is the fish. And, um, you know, uh, that peaked what is the greatest product of an age of rationalism of enlightenment? It's America. America Mm -hmm. is the product of 2000 years or 700 years, whatever of rationalist thinking. It's like the perfect form. And, and the guys who created America were the ultimate rationalists. You know I mean? They were, they were writing each other 25 page letters every day, citing, you know, they spoke four languages each. They were all citing every philosopher and they were Christians, you know, most importantly, they were Christians. And so we kind of built up to this beautiful, perfect thing, which was America. And then now it switched over. Now we're going, we're submerging in this like completely new world of new monsters. And the things that you're talking about, Lomez, are those new monsters. They're horrors beyond things that people before us couldn't even imagine. And mm-hmm. um, 
what I want to know though, uh, what is the difference in terms of archetypes or in terms of the Zodiac, whatever, what is the difference between Pisces and Aquarius? Because they're both like aquatic things. One is a fish, but why, why is one rational and the other one is whatever Aquarius is? And like, what is Aquarius? How do we like deal with that? Okay. This will take us extremely far off the conversation. So everyone has to go listen to it. It's called the Aquarian Kali Yuga. The, the, the only thing I'll say here now is that we argued, me and my friend Vitruvian in that episode argued that the Kali Yuga, which is this like Vedic or Indian, uh, religious, like, uh, mythological time period that was supposed to be in the future when it, when it was written like 2000 years ago or whatever it was, was the time of when, uh, the gods are asleep. And the gods are no longer interacting with the world. So the people who are living through the Kali Yuga are living through an era of pure materialism where there are no gods like imbuing the world with divinity because they're, they've gone to sleep. And, uh, Evola, Julius Evola likens this to the wasteland of the grail cycle where it's like, uh, the, the imagery that most people will understand with this is like in Sleeping Beauty. I think that's the one. Where the girl, the king, or maybe it's it's one of the fairy tales where the king goes to sleep and the castle gets like overgrown with vines and the knight has to come and like cut through the vines. That is the wasteland when like the generative power of like the, the divine source that uh, allows society to continue and imbue it with like a higher meaning or a higher purpose or a, a higher connection to the divine. Uh, it's kind of run out and you're in this like materialist age. So me and my friend Vitruvian were arguing that the, the age of Aquarius is the wasteland or is the age of the Kali Yuga. And this, of course, we grafted it on in that episode to Spengler's concept of the winter of civilization, the winter phase in which like the civilization still stands and like still exists and people still are there. But their like minds are gripped by materialism and that their interaction with the world, no matter how like religious they say they are, like that era is defined by materialism and a mechanistic understanding of the world, which we also liken to Nietzsche's period of the death of God and the last man that these are, which is so funny because that goes like exactly into what we're saying. Nietzsche is such the perfect punctuation point at the end of the age of rationalism, because one, he's declaring God dead. And two, he's, I mean, which he really isn't, but people, that's what he's famous for saying. But uh, and then two, what he does is he takes all of this high-minded air sign rationalism and truth-seeking, and mm-hmm. he just destroys all of it by saying, all of you people are just doing what makes you feel good, basically. You know, he's, he's saying, yeah, Kant, you're sitting around saying this is truth. Kant, this isn't truth. This is just truth that serves your will, Immanuel Kant. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful because it crushes the dream of of rationalism. And I think, Lomez, what you were just saying is like, right now, these monsters are created from checks that rationalism wrote that it can't cash. Or if not rationalism, at least science. Yeah, Like science has said, these are, everything's possible. And now we're running, we're like slamming into this wall, as you said, of like, all of those things, we've reached like the limit almost of what they can do. Yeah, we've overextended our credit line, you know, and um, there's 
what we're paying now the debts on that uh, or trying to, and we might default on it, you know, and the whole thing kind of collapses as a result. I don't know. I mean, you got to be careful with these analogies, you know, they can only extend so far. And if you take them too far, they start to collapse. So you want to like, make sure you're actually still have your eye on what is in front of you. Um, but I think it's the, I mean, this all sounds like exactly right to me. And just to get back to the earlier question, okay, what, what is like our new art going to look like? What is its purpose? Like, what are we trying to accomplish with any of this? Is there some grand political strategy or something? I think, again, I just want to say, I don't, think there is not in the proximate case instead we're just trying to shine a light on these monsters yeah. we're that's at it the, yeah we're at the we just we just yeah. want to see what is this stuff in front of us like what right. does this new horror look like what does this yeah. new nightmare look like right. and we're gonna have to leave it up to other people to then sort out the consequences of it yeah. Um, we're, we're in the age, we're in an exploration era totally and, and yeah. it's but not even an exploration of like the world we're in an exploration of yeah i guess all of these new things that really i mean it, it's amazing how fast they're created too right yeah because now we're in this stage of things that the people who are in charge even 10 years ago <clears throat> would have said were obviously absurd and wrong mm -hmm. are now totally okay. And, and completely the whole time we should have been, you know, giving children gender affirming. So right. yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's well, that's weird that... at all. Like, and it's like, well, yeah, you just made that up. You made that up like a year ago. And now that's so, like the way. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe does every generation feel like that? Does every generation feel like, things have changed so much in 10 years, or is this like another one of these monsters we're dealing with where it's just so slippery and no, we're, it hasn't always been like this. I think we're in a new paradigm because in the past, the liberalism was a reaction to conservatism. Whereas now the, the new generation of liberals. I think Moldbug would disagree with you there, right? In what yeah. sense? Well, Moldbug says that conservatism has always been a reaction to liberalism, not vice versa. And that's yeah, where but, the whole classically liberal, like I'm a classical liberal is, but is it's, actually. It's irrefutable though, that the, that like the hippies were like pushing back against like the conservatism of like the Anglo, you know, American Puritan, uh, Protestant way of life it's, and, and the military culture as well. Uh, I mean, does he refute that? Um, I mean, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I don't know. I, I would just, so there's, yeah, there's always this question, like, are we just uh, playing out the same sort of drama as generations before us? And, you know, every so often we just cycle through the same thing. And my answer is maybe, like, there's an element but so there. what? It's We're still in this. So even, you know, it is the case, you know, it's like history repeats itself. Okay. But in the particulars, it doesn't, it's always taking on some new shape and form. And so we're dealing with a set of circumstances that are in one sense, maybe familiar or common, you know, these cycles of change and turmoil and certainly technologies, uh, you know, sort of 
are these catalysts that propel us into these new worlds, but that doesn't in any way, in my mind, diminish the severity of what we're dealing with now. And it certainly doesn't guarantee that because we've managed in some sense to navigate through previous eras and previous cycles, we'll be able to successfully navigate through this one. The reason we can navigate through these cycles is because people are taking them seriously and taking their danger seriously. And so just because it might have existed previously is not a reason to absolve ourselves of the responsibility to look closely and be horrified at what we're seeing in front of us. Right. The revulsion is important. It's a, we, we never want to lose the revulsion. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a legal doctrine about that. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's like there are certain things that just cause revulsion in us. And that's that's enough. You know, that should be there's no utilitarian way out of it. And I think that that is like that's like one of our most sacred things, like for us, frogs or whatever you want to call us is like. Never lose the revulsion. Never talk yourself out of seeing yeah. something with your own two eyes and feeling something. And then somebody says, oh, you're not supposed to feel that way. It's like, no, you have to refuse always. You have to say, no, I am going to stay revolted by this thing that makes me uncomfortable, yep. even though it's uh, the the TV and my parents and the school and everybody tells me, oh, that's your own problem. It's like, no, no, that's, yep. that's I mean, you know, and that's why so many of us are gnostics because i think that that are is like breadcrumbs to god kind of right yeah i mean i i've said exactly this like i had a, a tweet a couple weeks ago which is just whenever you see or learn about some new grotesque horror of the current year you know depraved sexual fetish bodily mutilations or some other monument to the ugliness that rules our time remember that your disgust reflex is good and correct and to yeah, never yeah. doubt it yeah, you know that's yeah. like yeah. a core belief Right, totally. Yeah, so I'm I'm in like of two minds here because my opinion it, because Loma has made the comment that like we may never find our way out of it. Like it may just be like whatever the regime is doing, just continuing to do that forever, while we you know have our little you know group online doing our thing that like is like allowed to go on like within the wider context of this uh, liberal leftist civilization. Um, so my thought is that like the the tranny thing, I mean, let's just be honest, that's what we're talking about, is probably going to burn itself out. Uh, and it's probably not going to be a thing in 10, 20 years. Um, so I think in that sense, like the disgust reflex stuff we're talking about, like the new monsters that have cropped up, I think I think it's temporary. I could be wrong. I hope I'm not. Whereas uh, on the other side of it is the egalitarianism stuff, which this uh, bat puts it so well when he says the wealth transfer from the global north to the global south. And of course, the important thing people need to remember when he says that, like, it's not like our wealth is being transferred to Africa to build like uh, this new African utopia or in India or anything like that. No, uh, the, 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 the powers that be, the regime, whatever you want to call them, are playing the middlemen of this transfer and they're skimming the, you know, the, the king's share of it off the top for themselves. Um, but of course, it's a, it's a sort of a paradoxical effect because you, you send the wealth there, but you import, you know, the, the people. 
that yeah that is a different thing that's going to continue uh unabated it looks like that i think if they go hand in hand on the one on the one hand but you can have the 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 lgbt thing kind of burn itself out and not the other stuff yeah i mean i'm not you know you say what we're talking about here is the trans stuff i'm actually not talking about that i mean it is that that's part of it but okay. that's just one aspect of this much bigger thing and it's much more profound uh orientation towards ugliness and perversion you know it's it's really you know if if you just look at the artifacts being produced by our culture uh it's everywhere i mean it's it's in the stories it's in the films it's in the values that are embedded in those stories it's in the architecture it's in city planning uh it's in the ways that like our schools are um trying to like like what kinds of people they're trying to produce through like civic education i mean the 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 rot is incredibly deep uh the trans stuff is just an, a manifestation of that and may very well be temporary i don't know um but it's it's certainly not the whole thing it's it's uh it's just a piece of it yeah well that that kind of i guess refutes what i was saying because uh you're saying it's all of a part right it's all like... yeah yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean that that these politics are ultimately biological. People kind of uh I don't know, grimace at that idea that that it's biological because I think they misunderstand what it means, but that this leftist push is uh fundamentally not ideological. It's biological. It's a preference of the lesser uh uh over the good um to put it simply and you know go look at uh advertisements for like yoga wear and tell me what kinds of images and people are being preferenced in those i mean i get what you're saying and i don't have really much optimism at all but i i do want to ask like if you think the current generation of like wokesters sort of uh passes to the next do you think i mean how long can we expect this that type of thing to to be with us because i mean isn't like ultimately this is this is still very much on topic to what we were talking about because isn't sort of the uh refutation of that and the the subsumption of that part of our goal to sort of supersede that with our yeah. aesthetics yeah absolutely it is and, and what form what form like victory takes in that regard is an open question. Um, and I'm not really here to make predictions about that, but I mean, this also, so, you know, we're getting at a question too of if this is true, that, that the sort of status quo that the regime per se is dependent on sort of lesser biological uh, entities, I guess, um to sustain itself won't it just collapse at some point i mean can these people keep the lights on and you have some like faction of the right you know mike anton maybe is 
the most notable example of this, who says, no, it can't sustain. It's going to collapse. And we are going to be thrust into some kind of conflict as a result of that. This machine is broken beyond repair and it can only, it's running on fumes and it's just a matter of time before the whole thing falls apart. Then you have the Yarvin and, you know, uh, fisted by Foucault, you know, Niccolo Saldo, he's turbo, his turbo America thesis is the refutation of that, which is no, this machine can just operate on autopilot more or less forever. It's not going anywhere. And I don't, I'm kind of agnostic on that. Yeah. I mean, I'm in their camp. I'm in the, I'm in the Yarvin camp. Uh, I'm not totally like obstinately a hundred percent. I'm willing to listen to the other side. I think they have a lot of what they're saying has a lot of uh, merit to it. I just had uh, Charles Haywood on the show and we debated. Oh yeah, this. there you go. Yeah. He's yeah. another example of, of the collapse thesis. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's why I think like uh, if if we are on the autopilot thing, that this is why I cleave so firmly to Yarvin's like uh, I don't know I don't I don't know if I should use the word prediction, but his like picture of uh, digital modernity and like where we are and where we're going to go because I think if we are in that situation where things can go on autopilot for a while and we're like cycling through the regimes, I mean. Yarvin, uh, excuse me, Anton says this, that like we're we're in the cycles of history. So if we if we try to ascertain where we are in the cycle and what is potential to happen next, my doing that led me to think that Yarvin is the one who has the right uh, program and who sees things clearly for where they're at and where they could potentially go. And if things were to go in the way Yarvin uh, wants them to go and predicted them to go, and I think is having a hand currently in helping them go that way, uh, we may find ourselves, hopefully, best case scenario, in a, a near future in which these, uh, you know, people that he's talking about, these tech CEO monarchs, are uh, become the patrons of this future right wing artistic movement. I mean, that's like the rosiest colored glasses I can put on. Yeah, I mean, I'm th I think there's certainly some legitimacy to that prediction. I, I wouldn't like bet against it. In fact, I think the best case for the Yarvin thesis and the uh, Nick Niccolo thesis, the Turbo America thesis is like never bet against a streak. You know, uh, this machine has just been winning and winning and winning and winning. And even when it loses, it it's gaining power. And so it's a kind of, it's foolish to think, oh, this time is different. This time it's going to actually collapse. Uh, there may be some point in which that's the case, in which it will collapse. But trying to predict what it is and when it'll happen, I think, is is basically foolish. Like, um, you know, bet on the strong horse. And right now they're the strong horse. There's just, I think that's undeniable. I'm totally in that camp, and that's actually why I'm still holding out hope for Elon Musk to do something at least marginally positive because uh, if you look at his track record, yeah, he's been a success. And I know some people like to talk about how he's really just like uh, smoke and mirrors as a way to get himself a lot of investment capital uh, for his projects and his ideas. But I think him doing that, doing with Twitter what he did with SpaceX or um, Tesla – will probably hopefully be a win for us 
uh, even even a marginal victory. So, yeah, that's the same <clears throat> philosophy in which I'm kind of sticking with him, um, it, it, at least holding out hope, I should say. So I think but I think this has a lot. I think this has a lot of potential for for art. Um, you know, my Aquarius thing is like we're entering a new dark age. I think and other people say this, that the digital era is a dark age because it's definitely like a great leveling, a great erasure in a lot of ways of the artistic forms of the past, just in the way that chat GPT and um, whatever the visual uh, equivalent of that is that makes AI art is really like has a potential to completely render traditional art uh, obsolete, which it pretty much already is obsolete. Um but there's going to be probably uh, a hunger for real art. I mean, just the simple fact of like you and zero conscientiously like printing your books when you could stay online is a sign for that. And I think you guys are selling well, right? Did I ask you that earlier? Uh, how are the? Yeah, selling? I mean, we are. We're, we're, the books are selling. We're doing all direct from the website, so we're probably missing out on a lot of sales that we could be getting if we put it on Amazon and like we haven't done really any marketing outside our Twitter accounts. Like we haven't tried to reach an audience that's broader than this like niche space we're in. Um, but even there, uh, you know, we're, we sold out of the um, hardcovers of the passage price book. We're going to sell out of the paperbacks. There's maybe a couple dozen left. Um, Curtis's book is I'm sure going to sell out, although we did a much bigger print run of that. So we, we haven't sold through the entire, um, the entire print run yet. I mean, it hasn't been released. It's, it's going to be released probably in a couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's selling like the audience is there. There, there's That's a hungry awesome. consumer base. There are people who want this material and are willing to pay for it. They want it in physical form. Um, and appreciate what's going on here. So there's opportunity for sure. Whether this artistic movement leads to the collapse of global homo, though, is just, again, that's like too many steps beyond what I'm capable of thinking about. For now, the the focus just has to be on taking an honest look at our circumstances. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But I think, again, to repeat myself, the work that you're doing is uh, the work that needs to be done. It's like perfect for right now. It's perfect for right now. So that's good. That's good. Isaac, We uh, to change tack real quick, me and you talk about literature a lot. Um, I wanted to know if you – like who do you think is like good right now? I mean is Welbeck the only one? Like, do you do you have any contemporary writers that you read that you think are like uh, viable? Um, viable meaning? What do you mean viable? Re- relevant to like all the stuff we're talking about? Oh man, who do we know that like actually is good? Um, I mean, I'm a creative nonfiction guy, you know what I mean? So for me, like, I have a pretty narrow window of people. So I like people who write either Romanoclefs, which are basically fiction, but they're actually true. So that would be like Bukowski or John Fonte. 
yeah. or, you know, some of Hemingway's work, like Movable Feast, which I think actually is nonfiction, but, you know, uh, Sun Also Rises. Those are my two favorite books of his because they're like Romana Clefs, right? Um, so the, I like creative nonfiction, I guess you would say. So for me, like a really great magazine article can hit that level of like great creative nonfiction. That's my favorite like type of writing. Um, so who's doing that today? Almost nobody. I mean, almost mm. nobody is writing that <clears throat> type of writing. I agree. Um, you know, I, I, I Piran, the Piran Spring comes to mind. You know, I think he, um, really has that soul gonzo vision of what really good, like, adventure writing is. Um, of yeah. course there's Welbeck. Well, although Welbeck's books are much more fictional, but, but even he has some elements in there. I love Delicious Tacos, as you know. I mean, he's, I think his, in terms of just writing skill, he's so incredible. I also love BAP, you know, and part, the parts of BAP that I like the most are the kind of anecdotal ones about his, you know, like when he, when he's talking about getting drunk and, and walking around cities and, you know, when he's, his great thing about sitting at a, coffee shop and looking at the different women and you know that kind of thing i think there's a lot of to be perfectly honest i think there's a lot of great like former manosphere writing that is really like gonzo on the ground real life uh-huh. writing but um uh you know every now and then i'll come across a new yorker piece or oh man so i wrote a piece recently about um going up to i did like a trip up to Northern California by myself. And I just didn't use my phone for texting or anything for, for three weeks. And, um, in doing research for that, I like read some adventure, like what passes as adventure journalism today in like, uh, in, um, the New Yorker. And it is like so insanely bad. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like, so it's like, they don't even have a slight clue of how to do this. They just sent somebody to um in the most recent one they sent somebody to uh the World Cup and it was like supposed to be this gonzo piece and it was just like random comments about like he tried to go and find people who are like abused human slaves. Oh, he, like, of course, of course really that's what it was. Yeah. He like couldn't find anybody really. So like, <laughs> he, like, like he had a couple people being like, yeah, it's not great. And that was it. And like, it wasn't about anything. Like he couldn't have anybody just sit there and like have an interesting experience because the guy was supposed to like find the story and he just couldn't find it. So well, and he was also I, supposed to cater to these woke, you know, politics that right. are supposed well, to Well, like... and for me, like in my view, you cannot do it's like what do we say about Will? Like in order to make normal ads, you have to have a base agency. In order to make normal gonzo writing, you have to have a base person. There's you simply cannot do it in any other way. I mean, James Pogue his book is really cool. I mean, his his book, um, he's a guy, a, a true adventure journalist who's like recently become based. So I think like his work going forward will be really interesting to is, see. Is, I, his is his article on Vanity, Vanity Fair, yeah. his Vanity Fair piece was the best piece of mainstream journalism, the mainstream like gonzo writing I've read in years. And I think that anybody's read. So, you know, I think he's got a, a soul and a heart. He's just kind of a recovering commie a little bit. He, he would... Uh, disagree with that but um 
So, you know, it's really tough to find. I wish it's, you put me on the spot. I wish, I'm sure I could think of a couple other people doing it well, but that's who's on my mind right now. Well, you, you're, Isaac. Oh. You're you're doing that well. I mean, your Florida piece is your most unsung piece, in my opinion, of all. Well, of your, I've had songs. a string of of duds, so hopefully something will hit again soon because I need one. Isaac, I got a question about this because I've noticed this and actually had conversations with people about like the lost art of magazine writing. Like nobody knows how to write a magazine article anymore, and you know, there's like all these great exemplars of that from the 20th century, you know, Gates, Elise or Wolf or whoever. A.A. Gill. Well, there's this guy. Yeah, yeah, right. Gill. Exactly. And yeah. He was like and, a super conservative, like man, you know, right. Like, I, we, I should write a thing for man's world about A.A. Gill because he was the fucking man. I've never heard so of him. So it seems to me. Yeah. Oh, he's great. He's great. So like, I don't know. You tell me, but it seems to me one of the problems is, and this is as true of our side as it is of like status quo lefty New Yorker world, which is that Everything that's written, like pretty much no matter what magazine I open up, even the good ones on our side, everybody is like, has a take. It's like a thesis writing. And so it's like, it reminds me of almost like quasi academic writing. I have this argument, I have a thesis, and then I'm going to go point by point, like proving out the different steps of this argument rather than. I have a subject and I just want to show my readers my perception of this subject. Right. And whatever argument I have, whatever like underlying political claim I'm making is, is expressed entirely through subtext and entirely through like the choices I make with which details to show and whatnot. And I don't, and that's like my favorite kind of nonfiction writing too. And something I'm hoping to, cultivate with passage and i think actually our winners for the last passage prize did that they accomplished that but i'm just wondering why a that's gone out of fashion i I mean or is it just the case that nobody knows how to do this anymore it died with the magazine so so like the magazines died right I mean, there's, there's two magazines left that do anything resembling the kind of like high end stuff that used to be done. And that's the New Yorker and Vanity Fair. Everything else is dead. Everything else is now you make 200 bucks for the article, you know, or there's some clown shit where it's like a sponsored piece or behind the scenes, a sponsored piece, right? So like the stuff James Pogue is doing, he's like one of the last people in the world that actually does that type of like, actual i'm going to a place i'm experiencing something and then i'm coming back and like writing about it for a magazine Mm -hmm. that's dead largely just because they can't fund it so people like me what am i doing am i like writing for magazines no i'm you know running a marketing agency because i if i could make money writing for magazines i would but i i can't so there's just no point there was no point in going that path because i would have i would have to be poor for the rest of my life you know i mean like you hang out i've hung out with these magazine people like they Either they're rich kids or they are broke as fuck. And I was like, fuck that, man. I'm not going to be broke for my whole life. I don't want to do that. So, you know, you have to have a certain type of person that's willing to do that who's just not very good at what they do and doesn't really have a lot to say. So that's a big part of it. Um, And so, yeah, the the art of it is being lost. I mean, I don't think there's that much to it. Uh, I think you mentioned Gay Talese, you know, and Hunter S. Thompson. Those guys really knew how to do it. They knew how to package 
this experience in a magazine article length thing. So, you know, 5,000 words or something, and they'd be able to just tell this perfect little story in that. There's also some old Sports Illustrated writers. Yeah, absolutely. Even even Matt, Matt Taibbi was good at it and Mark Ames, and they're still around. I mean, they're not doing it anymore, and they're kind of not. I mean, Mark Ames used to be based as fuck. I don't know if he still is, but uh, I don't even really know who is. No, no, he's he's a. I mean, about, I yeah, Exile. He he writes for this uh, magazine called The Exile. They were Moscow-based writers at the end of the Cold War, and uh, he now does the um, War Nerd podcast. Yeah, War Nerd is with good Gary too. Brecker. Yeah, War yeah. Nerd is good too. But those guys were like the last gasp of it that i'm aware well, of. And, and i don't know anybody guys, who's done it since then who's so done the it thing well. about the, the thing about taibi the taibi class of people right taibi is just ruined by politicalness so yeah, like yeah. Yeah, that group the, these i agree groups, with that in order to survive in order to survive in this gynocratic media establishment that now completely dominates everything you have to be a very political type of person you have to be like somebody who really wants, and I, I, I won't say any names, but hanging out with some journalists, I've seen this firsthand. You have to really want the approval of like the people around you. You have to be really good. The thing about, look, and this is nothing to say anything bad about women at all. The thing about a female, <laughs> dominated, a female dominated workplace, just genuinely, whether you think it's good or bad. A female-dominated workplace is a different beast than a male-dominated workplace. I've worked in both. A female-dominated workplace is so much more about the environment itself than about the work product. Mm -hmm. It's about like the work product is the environment, right? Whereas for men, the work product is the work product. I'm not saying one is better or worse, by the way. I'm, I'm genuinely not. But when you have a media regime where the work product is the environment of the media regime, guys like Taibi, he's just polluted. Like he's, his soul is polluted because it's had to be. It, it's like a, it's like a, um, survival of the fittest thing. The reason we know his name is because he was able to play that game. And the fact that he was able to play that game pollutes his work in in a way, right? Uh, to be Where, sure, he he hasn't done this type of writing in like twenty years. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> so, he's fine. I I, I think it's nice what's happening with him. I think it's great that people like him and Pogue are waking up and realizing, like, oh shit, okay, like what I do isn't cool anymore. And the reason it's not cool anymore is because it's gotten completely hollowed out. Um, by the way, just to finish answering the question from before. One book that I think did an incredible job of this recently is actually Ronan Farrow's book. I know I've said this before. <laughs> Ronan Farrow's book's Catch and Kill is like, uh, it's so good. And it's, it's, right. it's a, it, I'm not saying it's necessarily good. Like, it is one of the better pieces of like actual journalism I've read in a long time because he's so catty and nasty. He like names names and he like really goes to this level of like, he's not trying to like, please anybody like he's totally like shitting on the system like completely and he calls people out like he calls out israeli black block stuff like he's he goes pretty ham against like the system so there's a few like outliers like that. but I, I don't know i mean it's a great question why, why does this stuff not exist why can we not have it and i think that's what we're doing i mean that's the project of what all three of us are doing and what so many people in our space is doing is um 
trying to find a place where this kind of stuff can live and also trying to find a place where people can make a living on it, you know, like they used to. Yeah. I just, I want to just hop on at the end to just say like, encourage writers, like kind of try to break away from this just straight thesis writing where everything you write has to start with like a take, like you're making a take instead uh, be willing to be a little bit more ex- uh, explorative and the value of the writing is going to hinge on your power of observation. And so trust, trust your observational powers and your ability to render that in language rather than just here's like my smart take on the issue of the day, which A, we've probably heard and B, isn't all that useful anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And people need to get out of that mode and out of that mindset. And I think history proves, at least the 20th century proves that there's a market for the gonzo type of writing. And I think uh, one of the, the main like umbrella terms for this era that we, we are in right now is like crowdsourcing. So like, whereas before you would have this high paid kind of well-known writer, like Hunter S. Thompson's kind of the go-to gonzo guy who goes around to different events and writes about them in his like uh, in his idiosyncratic style. Whereas now I think it would be more like you have a journal or an outlet where you have different people. Um, you you kind of crowdsource the, the experience like from like a pool of people. You have uh, people who are traveling the world or people who are going on all these adventures that can uh, produce, c- could produce if they had like, the guidance but also like the 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 motivation to sort of uh because right now it's all just like your personal instagram account you know or your personal facebook account and it's all kind of like hack jobs and it's all pretty low quality and people tiktoks they put out just any garbage of themselves in their pajamas but if you had something like the passage press right that's sort of like motivating people to like really refine it really put something behind it and like to, to express themselves in that way. I'd like to think that maybe in the future we could have like this outpouring of like uh, uh harder work. And, you know, this is also why like the work of the editor in our era is so important because if you're running a magazine, an online journal, that's like publishing just like your friends or guys who did like a Twitter post that you thought was good, that you asked them to turn into an article, you're kind of approaching like random guys on the street. So uh, strong editing is like a big and, and not just editing, but also like uh, 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 like a cultivating, like cultivating a certain like look or a certain thought, you know, like um, <laughs> going after certain people who have that like particular edge or that particular aesthetic to try to like mold it into some sort of like, for lack of a better term, movement. Like Delicious Tacos was on the show and yeah. I really strongly disagree with him. He hates the term movement. Uh, but I think it's a useful, I think it's a useful term. I mean, I get his point, you know? Yeah. It's also, we, we suffer from the problem of, um, as I just said before, I don't actually believe that a feminized environment or women in the workplace is a bad thing. In fact, they can provide quite a bit of cohesion that is necessary and great. The problem is now you have ultra hyper social socialization on one side where nothing good can exist. And then on the other side, you have a bunch of fucking assholes 
which is what we are, <laughs> you know, and, and trust me, like in dealing with our people for so long, I'll just tell an anecdote here. There's no reason why not to, uh, you know, I, I dealt with Menaquinone four back in the day quite a bit, uh, not quite a bit, but just like for a little bit. And he sent me his piece to like edit one time. And I just was like, oh, here's my edit. And he got super pissed <laughs> because of like, I slashed and burned it. Right. And I didn't even like, I understand why he got that way now, but you talk to tacos, you talk to zero, you talk to any of these guys, me now, palladium tried to edit me. And I was like, fuck this. I just pulled the piece right away because I was like, no, I'm not playing ball. I don't, I don't want to fucking like, I know every, that's opinion. what everybody thinks. You no, know, like, I don't want to hear your like opinion that. in my writing. Like, fuck you. Like we're all so sensitive and so tired of being yeah. fucked and messed with yeah, that yeah. we're a bunch of fucking assholes now. And that makes it really hard to get any cohesion in place. Uh, but it makes to, it hard to get to, high to quality. It, ha- it makes it hard to set a standard and maintain that standard because I mean, zero told me that he edits all his work himself. He is at the highest level I've seen of anyone. Yeah, and I'm ta- talking about the same, right? But not everyone's going to be at that level. So you can have like yeah. raw talent that can't really refine it on the level that those guys can. And it's never going to go anywhere in my opinion. Uh, but I want to hear uh, Lomez's uh, right, yeah. Lomez. No, but you're right. I mean, everyone, every single person is like what you just said. Like, but only a couple people actually have the chops to like justify it. You know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, editing is a huge problem. Uh, and but the main issue is, and I think Isaac, you're being maybe a little too hard on yourself and thinking that the reason you're averse to editing is because you're an asshole. Mostly it's because nobody knows how to edit. Exactly. Editing right. is like a real art. Yes. And I have not encountered anyone in our space or adjacent spaces who knows how to do it at all. They, the ones who presume to know how to do it at best can like fix some typos, but most of the time are going to take out precisely the things in your work that make it interesting and unique to you so I would also be in no rush to like seek out an editor. Like there's no Gordon Lish waiting to find some kind of messy, imperfect genius and polish it, you know, like he did with, you know, Raymond Carver or Barry Hanna or something. The Gordon Lishes are as dead and gone as the Tom Wolfs. These guys just don't exist anymore. Uh, and I don't, I don't even know where to begin to start that process or what it would take to find, you know, a Gordon Lish or, or a magazine editor of which there are many examples from the last century who basically created a style, you know, of their own. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's, that's a very difficult question. And I think, that is a luxury that we're going to have to wait around for. The first thing is getting the talent and it's going to be, and this is the thing I try to tell people all the time. You know, they talk about how good is the stuff in like passage prize. Be honest with me. Like, tell me, is this good shit? I say, yeah, it's good, but it's messy. It's imperfect. It's impolished. It's green. And that's okay. I mean, that's all we can sort of expect at this stage when we're in an ecosystem that doesn't have these pieces in place um, to sort of polish off all those edges. 
And I think that's kind of good. I mean, I wouldn't want uh, like the aesthetic that we're trying to cultivate is just going to inherently be messy at this stage. And so be it. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm less, I, I guess I'm less concerned about that problem than you guys are. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword because people like that. Actually, it like lends a sort of, uh, Patina. Well, it's that DIY punk aesthetic. Yeah, so people like it. It's messy. The sound quality isn't great. It's sort of fuzzy and whatever. I think it holds people back as well, though. Uh, Not people, not individuals, but I think it holds like the whole. Like, did you edit the Passage Prize book? Like, how, how, to what extent did you edit it? Certain pieces needed more editing than others, but I tried to keep a very light touch. I didn't want to insert my style on any of it. It was mostly just, you know, young writers, especially, they have certain tics that they don't even notice when they're writing, like they'll repeat certain phrases, or there's a lot of what I call like dead freight in the writing, these kind of filler phrases, especially like in dialogue, nobody knows how to write dialogue, there's all these tags that don't need to be there. And so I just kind of, you know, just to kind of speed things up, cut some of that stuff, but I left the messiness alone, you know, I didn't try to, I mean, I really could have dug in and reshaped some of these stories, but a, I didn't have the bandwidth to do that. And then B, I think it's a violation of the spirit of what this thing is. Now, when we have our novel contest and we select a winner for the novel contest and we're going to publish that novel or the short story collection that we have coming in, that's a different thing. We're going to, we're going to spend time and I'm going to spend time with the writer and help them think through what it is they're trying to accomplish on the page and make sure that that stuff is tight and sharp and polished. Um, so the passage prize is a bit different in that respect. Okay. Yeah. So you guys are, I mean, you're really like the only outlet right now that's doing this, like in, in a way that is uh, focused on, on, our sphere or like-minded people. So, I mean, you guys are really putting the work in. I, I, I'm really proud and honored that you wanted to come on this show and promote it because it's exactly the type of thing that I have a show to promote and explore. Um, the knowledge that this is happening is like, brings me so much more optimism than I would have otherwise had. I mean, what you just said is like exactly what we need. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know how it's all going to, um, sift out over the next say 10 years uh but it's good because the political landscape and the cultural landscape is pretty bleak at large but like this island and this pillar of like what you're helping create uh and craft and and cultivate is uh really gives me reason for optimism thanks man i appreciate that yeah and i think you know i i I have to say I, I, there's got to be many thousands of people who feel exactly the way I do about it and uh, it was good I was glad to bring both of you together um you know I know Isaac is going to come on many more times and Lomez you're, you're also welcome to come on as many more times anytime you have anything to promote I think we're pretty much at the end here I, I have to get going but I want to let either one of you have a, a last word if there's any last thought you hadn't gotten out or something to promote you haven't promoted I'm good, man. Just uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. Um, yes, I would say come to the carousel, the carousel.substack.com. Um, I got a new piece today about movies that's out. Uh, the trend of like 
Eat the Rich movies, which is like everywhere. And I have this guy, Kino Corner, who's like a big YouTuber coming on the show today, the podcast with Carousel. Uh, so that'll be out later. And yeah, that's it. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to link to Passage and the Carousel in the show notes. So definitely go go to both of those and check them out. Isaac's got a great show. He's I've been on his show. He's been on mine. So, um, and we'll link Twitter and uh, stay tuned for the passage prize. I'll make some sort of announcement on this show when it's actually all said and done, either once the book is out or the winners have been announced or something like I that. I mean, go ahead. You can direct uh, readers if they want to purchase the uh, passage prize book. It's available and there's still some left. I mean, we uh, reduced the price from the original hardcover was 400 bucks. This one's 75 and it's worth every penny. So, um I mean, it's a really, really high quality book. I know Isaac's got one. So uh... it's amazing. It's really, <laughs> really good. It's definitely worth it and definitely awesome. I need to I need to actually read the thing. I read only your intro so far, which is great. Nice. <laughs> well, yeah, good, good. All right. And then um, also go back and listen to the Zero HP Lovecraft, Curtis Yarvin, and the previous Lomez episodes because if you're new to the passage, uh between the three of those episodes, those three guys uh, lay out the philosophy uh, in you know much more detail than we did today. So thank you to the listener, and thank you, you guys, for joining. Astro Flight Simulation signing off. 